Well, please, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 45. We'll be really looking at the end of 45 and all of 46, which seems like a lot. For those of you who are new, uh, we are at the tail end of a year and a half study in the book of Genesis. So after Genesis, we'll move to Colossians. And we are in what I call the saga of Joseph, like the last 15 chapters are all about Joseph and his, the saga of that. And we call this one the move to Egypt. God cares about you. He cares about your struggles. And he is actively working to produce joy in you. And I really do believe that no one will truly love God unless they have experienced God's love for them. But there is more to life and more to you than your personal relationship with God. As Christians, we need to know that we are somehow joined together to something much larger than ourselves. Without this larger purpose in our minds, we can become aimless and self-centered. Well, what is this thing, this entity, that is so grand, so enduring, so glorious, that it is worthy of your time, your energy, your devotion in this life? It's the church. So far in the book of Genesis, we have seen God call Abraham to himself. We've also explored how God's covenant promises to Abraham included his children. And at the same time, God is still free to sovereignly work in whomever he chooses. But with Jacob, whose name is now Israel, we see that God's plan is much grander than saving an individual or even a family. God is building a people, a holy nation, for himself. And so, as a Christian, you have been personally, individually loved with an eternal love. In a sense, God, before the foundation of the world, had your mind, your name in his mind as he was thinking of his plan of salvation. It gets that personal. But you also need to come to understand that you are one small block in a tremendous building that God is building. So in today's passage, I want to try to draw out for you that, that God deeply cares about Jacob as an individual. As, as one individual with, with hopes and fears and dreams. and He cares about Jacob as an individual. But in the middle of this caring for Jacob as an individual, God begins to unfold for us that he has a larger plan, a grander plan, 
of which Jacob is only one small piece. So we'll pick up the story in Genesis 45, beginning at verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now what is going on here? God is taking the most powerful unbeliever in all the world at that time the most powerful man on the planet, who is not a believer in God or in Jacob or the covenant promises, and he is moving him to be favorable to God's people. That's pretty cool. (laughs) You see, you and I serve a God who's able to take the, the, the hearts of powerful rulers and provide for his people at will. That's who he is. And I believe that God still does that to this day. It is right for us in the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed, Father, give us our daily bread. And to actually recognize that that he might just actually take a ruler and, and change his heart so that he gives us our daily bread. At the same time, it's important to understand that God doesn't always work that way. Now, I know we're not there yet. We're not even in the book of Exodus. But move forward 400 years, and there's a different Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh is oppressing God's people. He's got them in slavery. He's treating them cruelly. Now, the same God who was over the first Pharaoh is over this Pharaoh. In fact, if you go to that place, you can actually see that it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God could have softened Pharaoh's heart. Could have changed him the way we would want, but he didn't. So I'm telling you in this is that God is over the the governors and rulers of this world, sometimes in ways that are very favorable to us and sometimes not, but he's still over them all. That's the point. And God is using both the favorable ruler and the unfavorable ruler to carry out his grand purposes. So when God doesn't answer your prayers in the way that you would like them to happen, keep in mind that this is who your God is. If he doesn't answer them the way you'd like, he's got got something going on. And he's got your interest in mind. And he's working out his grand purposes. And you have to wait and trust him. In those times. Moving on, verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. 
To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Another, another translation might be, Don't be afraid. Don't, don't let your fears overcome you. See, everything is provided for Jacob to make the move to Egypt. Joseph and Pharaoh have thought of everything, abundant provisions, carts to carry you, some of you that can't walk, um, new clothing, Certainly would be kind of a reminder of Joseph wearing his royal coat previously. Now they're all decked out in these coats. Uh, abundance of silver, especially to Benjamin. Extra coats for him. That too would be a slight reminder to Jacob that Joseph is the one giving this uh, to him. As the brothers draw near to home, Jacob again takes center stage. So this is a story about Jacob, but really we've been talking about Joseph the whole time, haven't we? And the brothers. And so we might have forgotten somewhat about Jacob. But he's, he is central to the story, and so he takes center stage again. And it's easy when someone goes off the stage to just forget about them. Like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. To kind of forget about Jacob's trials, what he's going through. And so I want you to understand a few things. Kind of recall to mind Jacob's life. You see, Jacob has lost his favored son, Joseph. Thinks he's gone, destroyed, killed. He has uh, grieved over that for many years. Now he's been forced to send his next beloved son, Benjamin, down to Egypt. And he's been forced to wonder if he would lose Benjamin as well. He's actually probably wondering if he's going to see any of his boys again. It would not be too much to say that fears are his constant companion. And what can he do? Nothing but wait. He has not received any updates. He doesn't have a cell phone. You know, call me at this time, let me know what's happening. All of his previous victories, you know, when he wrestled with God all night and, and when he saw God bless him with his father-in-law Laban and the sheep and things, all those victories feel like they don't even matter. He's wondering, I am quite confident, whether all of the promises of Abraham that were given to his dad and then on to him, whether all of those promises will just... Come to nothing. And then he sees this great caravan approaching. And we pick up in verse 25. So they went out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is alive! And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. One translation stopped. For he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, and the spirit of their father, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. 
Notice the change from Jacob to Israel. That's going to be an important thing as we move along. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now the brothers run up. They're as happy as could be. Joseph is alive. He's the ruler of all Egypt. Now what would you be thinking? No. It's kind of like after the crucifixion, the, this, the testimony of the ladies. The angel told us Jesus is alive and he's king over everything. And the apostles are like, yeah, right. Jacob is trying to wrap his mind around news that just seems unbelievable to him. It seems too good to be true. And then the brothers start talking to him. They start relaying the words of Joseph to them. And, and you know, Jacob is looking at, wow, there's carts, there's provisions. It's obvious that, that they didn't steal away with these things. These things have been given to them. It's the provisions for the journey down to Egypt are, are all here. So maybe it is true. And then his spirit revives. And he starts to think, I get to see Joseph again. The man, the one that I loved, my favorite son, I now get to see him again and behold him. And so he decides to take his whole family down to Egypt. You think Joseph is, th I mean, Jacob is thinking about the Eternal covenant promises at this point? No. He wants to see his son. It's a very personal felt need. Now how do you think God feels about jo Jacob at this moment? You selfish man. All you think about is yourself. Being renetted yourself. You're not even thinking about my larger covenant promises. Is that how God feels? Or is God sharing in Jacob's joy? And in a sense, God grieved with Jacob all the years that he was suffering the loss of his son. No, all the while knowing he was going to give him back to him, but all those years of suffering, God was with Jacob in that time. See, I want you guys to understand who your God is. He is not indifferent to your personal struggles. And he shares... In your joy. Now Jacob gets his family and they head toward head south and they get to a place called Beersheba. Now Beersheba is at the bottom, the bottom southern tip of the land of Canaan. So let me read this. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And spoke to Israel in visions of, of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am, or here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but it seems to be right on my uh, experiences, at least in my life. I get so excited about something personal that's happening in my life that's a good thing. I get all excited about it. And then he's, I'm, he's traveling down to the, to the 
border, the border, the southern border of the promised land, and he begins to say, uh, wait a minute. Is this a good idea? Is this really what God wants? I think he begins to start doubting. I think he's kind of afraid. He's like, am I just like others who have left the promised land? And if I leave the promised land, will that mean the end of God's promises to me as a people? And I'm doing it just to go see my son? Can you see how that might happen in his life? He might start thinking, what's going on? And so right at the southern tip, of the promised land. Before he takes that final step out of the promised land, he says, I'm going to offer some sacrifices and I am going to seek God. What does God want? I wish it was my first thought, what does God want? Usually my first thought is, what do I want? And then later on I get to, well, what do you want? Right? Don't you want your life to somehow fit into God's larger plan? Don't you want your life to be more than just about what you want? Don't you want to know that somehow I fit into God's larger purposes for this world? It really wouldn't be too hard to make a case that Jacob should just stay in the promised land and wait. On God to bless him. That's where the promises are supposed to be. In the end, when all said and done, he is removing his family from the promised land, taking them down to Egypt because he wants to see his son. How will God respond to this? Well, God shows up. By the way, this is the last time that God speaks in the book of Genesis. Until you get to Exodus, when he starts talking to Moses, we have no other recorded evidences of God speaking to his people. This is the last one. What does God say? I am Elohim. Now, Elohim is the the, the name of God Almighty. Yahweh is the name of the covenant God with his Abraham. So he's he's declaring to Jacob, I am the God who is over Egypt. I am the God Elohim, and I am the God of your father. That directs him to the covenant promises. He says, amazingly, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Leaving the promised land is my will for you. It's not the end of the covenant promises. It is the means by which I have determined to bring those covenant promises to fruition. He says, I will make you... Israel, into a great nation. And I'm going to do it, not in the promised land, I'm going to do it in a foreign land, down in Egypt. Now here I am going to take this little small band of people, take them down to a foreign land who doesn't even like them, 
And in that foreign land, I'm going to make them into a massive, great nation. Something similar happens with us today. Jesus is building a people for himself, a kingdom. That's what he's doing. He doesn't get us all to heaven and then build his kingdom. He builds his kingdom all over the nations of the world. That's pretty awesome. He's demonstrating his ability to build his people in the farthest reaches of the earth. But then he says to Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you back again. Now, I find this rather humorous. If you know the rest of the story, which you may or may not, it's okay if you don't, Jacob's going to die in Egypt. And the only way he's going to get back to Canaan is in a coffin. Joseph's going to carry him back. So when God says, I will bring you back, there's a sense of, is God bringing him back? Yes, he is, but not alive. I think part of this is that Israel is not just an individual. Israel is one of the heads. I mean, Christ is the ultimate head, but he's, he's one of the heads of Israel, and he's going to bring his whole people back after 400 years, he's going to bring them back. But then he says something even more precious, I think. He says to Jacob, Joseph's hand will close your eyelids. Now this, is, this makes no sense in the grand scheme of God. This is just him personally giving to Jacob a beautiful gift. The son you love that you thought was lost will be the one to close your eyelids. Pretty awesome. The personal love of God towards one man, Jacob. And we're going to come back to this in a moment because we're going to get to, at the end of chapter 46, we're going to get to this this grand uh, reunion between Joseph and his dad. But we got a list of some 70 names that we're going to try to work through here. It's not going to be easy. So I'm going to read it rather quickly, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it, okay? Verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel. That phrase, Israel, the sons of Israel, is going to be important. Carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Notice the emphasis on all in those passages. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, and Onan. Remember those two names? Thought they were dead. Interesting, isn't it? 
they're listed. It's going to be important in a moment. Ur and Onan, we know God killed them. And the whole issue with, with Tamar and that issue back in Genesis, they're dead. And yet they're in this list. Think about that for a moment. Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puvah, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jahlil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter, Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Erzbon, Eri, Eredi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim. Isn't that interesting? Manasseh and Ephraim are in, the, in this list, and yet they weren't, they didn't go, they weren't part of the journey. They were already down there. Whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, and Huppam. Those are good names. Muppam and Huppam. And Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And, all of, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, thankfully, I don't have a lot of things to tell you about those names, or else we'd be here a long time. But I do have a few things to tell you. Moses, I'm assuming Moses is the one that's either editing or writing this, purposely wants to get to 70 names. That's his intention. Now, we can ask the question why he wants to get to 70, but that is his intention. Now, he does this in a, in a way, I might have to go back in my notes here. He does this in a way that is only really seen if you try to count the names, which I'm not going to ask you to do today. If you're really interested in this, we could talk about it. I've got some sheets. We can go through it and count it. But I just want to tell you some of the difficulties of trying to get to 70 names that are listed here. Leah's, uh, all of her children and grandchildren and such, gets to 33 people. And so I start trying to count out 33. And it really is difficult to get to 33 with that in mind. Uh, a couple things that happen. There's a couple ways that you might do it. If you look in um, the first list, there's someone named Ohad. When we look at other lists in the Old Testament, like Chronicles and other places, Ohad is mentioned nowhere else. The scholars actually think it might be an heir. 
that it, they might have like somehow it got into the text as an error. I don't know. But, but one of the ways to get to 33 is omit the name Ohad. And this is what you do then. You have, she has six sons. She has 25 grandsons. But in order to get 25 grandsons, you have to include Ur and Onan, who are both dead. And then there's two great-grandsons in that list, okay? Which seems kind of, so, okay, Ur and Onan are already dead. We have to include them. I don't know. So there's another way. Another way to do this is you can include sons and daughters. You can get rid of Ur and Onan. So you have six sons, 24 grandsons, including Ohad, who we're not sure if he exists anyway, two grandsons and one granddaughter, Donna. Why do we choose this one granddaughter, Dinah, and not the other women? Surely there are other daughters. Why does she get included? Now, there's another one. You can exclude Ohad, you can exclude Ur and Onan, and you can have Dinah, and then you might have another daughter because the text says that they're all together his sons and his daughters, plural, numbered 33. Any way you look at it, it is confusing and hard. The writer wanted you to get to 33. You go down to the next section with uh, their sons of Zilpah in verse 18. She bears 16 persons. Um, And the way to get to 16 in that list is you have two sons, 11 grandsons, two great-grandsons, and a granddaughter named Sarah. We don't even know who she is. Why does she get put in there? Now, the children of Rachel and Bilhah are pretty straightforward, but you still have to ask, did they not have daughters that we want to include? And you get to verse 26, and he says, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came down into Egypt were, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's wives and his sons, were 66 persons in all. And you say, well, how do we get from 66 to 70? Well, there's a couple ways to do that, too. You get... You get Joseph is actually included coming down because he came down to Egypt earlier, but his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are not included, so we have to add them because they're there. And then there's two sons that didn't come down, Ur and Onan, so maybe that's the I don't have the answers to this. I'm just telling you that the writer wants you to get to 70. That's what he wants. You get to Exodus 1, and they're talking about being brought up out of Egypt. And the first thing they tell you in verse 5 of Exodus 1, you don't have to turn there, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Bam. Why are they getting 70? You see, from this small microcosm of 70, that 70 is a representation of the whole people of God. It is everyone. Okay? It is this, from this 70 people that God will form a great nation who will be constituted according to the 12 tribes. They'll be leaders of the 12 tribes. They will be this great nation, but it begins with this 70. And I believe there's even elements of, of uh, the whole world in this. Because if you go back to Genesis 10, when there's a listing of all the different nations besides Israel, 70. 70. So this is where I don't want to confuse you, but I might. I've got I've skipped a bunch of my notes. That's okay. What is God's grand plan? 
He is making one people. He is making one people for himself. There's different images of it. It can be called Israel. It can be called the body of Christ. You can call the New Testament church or New Old Testament church. He's building this one body. And it is a complete body. It's not a body with a thumb missing. You know, if God, if it just, if God wanted a thousand people in this body, there'd be a thousand people in it. It's full. It's complete. There's none missing. That's the point. It is the visible people of God that he is redeeming. Now, I know I'm going to make some jumps, but I'm going to tell you today that you are members of that same group of people. Thank you. Uh, from all of history, God is redeeming a whole people for himself, and you have been brought into that. See, he loves you as an individual, but he loves his church. He loves the fullness of his church. Now, in, when we get to the judgment day, he's going to have to peel out some people that weren't truly in his church, you know, the separation of sheep and goats kind of stuff. He's going to have to do that and say, who are his true church? But in this life, if you are a baptized member of the church, you belong to this grand scheme. You're, you're, it, life is just not about you. God has woven you into this grand fabric of redemption. Let me just give you a couple New Testament verses. First Peter. You, talking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's Peter. Paul makes it his ambition to make sure that Gentile Christians know that they are part of this one plan. He says in Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the plan of history. Now why should this matter to you? I've seen it in my lifetime, but it's, it's, I'm sure the older saints in here have seen it even more drastically. God cares for his church. Jesus died for individuals, but he died for the church. And the only expression of the church that we have today is the institutional church. He loves you as members of his church. I am a pastor of a church. That church matters to God. And he wants you to care about his church. He doesn't want you to just care about your personal needs. Yeah, he cares of those. But he wants you to love his church with the belief that even though we see in our daily lives, we see some people come in and leave and we see kids grow up and apostatize the church. We see all that kind of stuff happen. But the belief is that somehow through our serving in God's church, God will somehow redeem the entirety of his people. And when we get to glory, we'll look and we'll just see this grandiose church of whom 
he used us in some small way to build. You see, what the world tells you is the church is not worth your time, your effort, your energy. I'll give it to whatever other cause you have. Your own personal individual causes. And you know what that leads to? It leads to purposelessness and meaninglessness. Because you don't have a cause that is actually bigger or big enough to actually give you true meaning and purpose. A couple over here, Mark and Jenny are going to get married on Sunday, or Saturday. I'll, I'll be there Saturday. Um, God designs human marriages. He loves when marriages come together. And then what does Paul say when he says, uh, he says to uh, the Ephesian church, he says, yeah, husbands should love your wife, but Christ is the head of his church. And he loves his church. Do you see how that works? If you want to love the church, you have to love individuals in the church. Some of you are like introverts. Some of you are extroverts. Some of you are like big picture people. Some of you are just small. But everything that you do, whether you're loving the person next to you on an individual level, just sitting down and talking with them, you need to have in your mind that that little conversation is not just this one-on-one conversation, but I am in the grand scheme of God building the church. That's what you should think of. And if you are a big picture guy and you you love the institutional church and you want to see big things happen, do you know what you need to remember? You need to remember that by loving the grand church, you have to love individuals. See, some people can love the, the idea of the church without loving the individuals. And there is this great tension. And I see it in this passage. Verse 29. Then Joseph repaired his chariot and went to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. See how personal that is? It's between them two. And if all you care about are ideas of the church and you don't actually care about individuals, you won't know the joy. But if all you have is the individuals and you don't know the grand scheme, you're missing out as well. Look at the very ending, 31 to 34. Joseph said to his brothers, to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of the livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock. From our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, and here's the kicker, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So this has nothing to do with Joseph's reunion with his dad or anything. It's like now you step back and you see this big picture. Why is God bringing us to Egypt? Because he knows that if we remained in Canaan, we would intermix with the Canaanites. And he said he brings them down to Egypt where the Egyptians say, I don't want anything to do with you guys. Prejudice, segregation, (laughs) and God's using segregation in order to build his people as a unique people. Grand picture things that are going on. So how do we get out of this sermon? Trust Jesus Christ 
as your personal Savior. His blood was shed for you as an individual. He loves you as an individual. It's not too much to say that his blood was shed and fill in your name. Secondly, trust that Jesus Christ is the Savior of a whole church, a complete church. He died for the whole body, and he is in process of saving all those for whom he died. And then from that, two applications. You belong to something far greater than your own self. Every other institution in this world will cease to exist. Even the marriage between Mark and Jenny will one day fall away. The church will carry on. You think about that. Every other group you're a part of, it won't keep going. The church is eternal. So what do you do? And this is really the really only application. Devote yourself to the church. Devote yourself. It'll look differently in all of your lives. You're not gonna, nobody's gonna have the exact same application. You sure can't all take my job. That's a little bit of a joke. I want <laughs> but everybody has a place in the church. And even when you don't feel like you want to serve the church, remember that this is what God is doing, his grand scheme, and it'll help you to want to serve the church. I guarantee you the people that served at VBS were tired. And Anna is here. I said at the beginning you weren't here, but she got here. So, but they're tired. And you say, is that really worth it? I ran around chasing kids five nights. Was that worth it in the scheme of things? Well, if you're connected to God's plan of redeeming people, it is. Sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. It is the only labor, 1 Corinthians 58, 15, 58, is the only labor that you are guaranteed that if you serve the church, your labor will not be in vain. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Love the church because Jesus loves the church. Amen.